Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president and the Socialist Party candidate in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angel Walker and I ran on. So I want to talk a little bit before we get to questions and answers about the, uh, I guess you could say, the insanity of the Biden administration. Um, yeah, Trump and DeSantis and McCarthy and the rest of the far-right Republicans are even worse. Uh, their pronouncements are out of touch with reality. They really are acting insane. You know, somebody doesn't know reality around them. But the Biden administration is, let's say not literally insane, but irresponsibly reckless. And I want to talk about two examples. Uh, one is U.S. policy toward Israel, Palestine, and Iran. And then U.S. policy on nuclear power and weapons. And I'll talk a little bit about fossil fuels. So in late January, the U.S. and Israel staged a joint military exercise simulating a joint attack on Iran, which is incredibly provocative. And then that was followed up on February 19th by the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Thomas Needs, or Nides, or I'm not sure how to pronounce it, N-I-D-E-S. And he said, and I quote, Israel can and should, should do whatever they need to deal with Iran's nuclear program, and we've got their back. And that wasn't a gaffe, because a little more than 10 days later, on March 1st, he said basically the same words. It's a formula uh, at an Israeli think tank event. And of course, this is extremely dangerous. And if Israel, which has done some drone strikes on Iran, you know, really started a war with Iran, uh, it would be a regional conflagration, if not uh, a world war. And, you know, Iran and allies that are backing it, like Russia and China versus Israel and its allies, allies like the Saudis and the Emiratis and the U.S. I mean, it's just irresponsible. To talk like that. Um, <clears throat> now, the nuclear deal with Iran is not dead, uh, and there's some indications it's back on the table. It's just right now that Ukraine war and Iran providing uh, um, drones to the Russians is making those negotiations uh, difficult. And then you've got the repression of the uprising by the women and pro-democracy forces in Iran that are being ruthlessly suppressed. Thousands jailed, uh, show trials, executions. Uh, it's just a bad situation. So, uh, but that Iran nuclear deal to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons to Iran is something that should be pursued as soon as possible. And the, all this war talk coming from the uh, US ambassador to Israel uh, does not help the situation. And the U.S. is also giving a green light to the constant expansion of Israeli settlements and occupations of the West Bank at the expense of the Palestinians. Now, the Biden administration is nominally opposed. In other words, they give lip service uh, to opposing the expansion of Israeli settlements and uh, therefore a two-state solution with the Palestinian state based on the West Bank and Gaza. But their actions don't back up their words. Um, we've had, particularly this year, since the first of the year, the Israeli army 
or settler vigilante groups have been killing Palestinians at a rate we haven't seen in years. 80 killed since the start of 2023, including 15 children. So, you know, the U.S. wonders why the global South won't back them on opposing the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Well, they see the hypocrisy. The U.S. is backing the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And, you know, until they get consistent on whether they're opposed to occupations and annexations and imperialism by anybody, uh, it's going to be hard to bring uh, countries in the global south in particular around on Ukraine. And then, of course, the U.S. always vetoes any resolutions criticizing Israel in the U.N. Security Council. And, of course, we should oppose all imperialisms and support all liberation struggles of oppressed nations. Uh, but the U.S. is not doing that. And uh, that's what I mean. Uh, they're reckless. Uh, you know, they're, they're really about, uh, you know, what's good for U.S. imperialism. And uh, the Ukraine thing fits into that. Although in this case, I think it's the right thing to do. The Ukrainians have a right to self-determination and to get arms from wherever they can get them to defend themselves. Um, when it comes back to Israel and Palestine, given all these killings and all this provocative talk from Israel and all this, you know, the cooperation on a military exercise simulating uh, a war against Iran, Israel and the U.S. last January, um, you know, what we need to be doing is pushing harder than ever for BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions against Israel until they uh, get serious about a two-state solution or one-state solution. That's up to them and the Palestinians, but a solution that recognizes the human and political rights of Palestinians. And in the meantime, we should answer the call of the Palestinian National BDS Committee, the most widely based in civil society organization among the Palestinians. And what they're saying is, you know, our immediate demand should be for the U.S. to cut off military aid to Israel until it starts meeting its international law and human rights obligations. So that's one area where the, the Biden administration is being very reckless. And the other thing is, you know, today is the tw 12th anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Four nuclear power plants melted down. Uh, one of them probably from the earthquake, the other three uh, once the uh, tsunami came in. <clears throat> and to this day, they're irradiating uh, 150 tons of contaminated water every day. And it has to be stored forever. But they're running out of storage space in Japan. You know, they put in, brought in storage tanks, but they, they're saying, you know, we, we, we can't do this forever. Um, so now they want to start dumping it into the Pacific Ocean. And there's a lot of pushback by the Japanese population and environmental groups and other countries in the region and people around the world. Um, the Fukushima disaster should have been the last nail in the coffin of the nuclear power industry. But the U.S. and actually at a larger scale, Russia, are continuing to export nuclear power plants across the world, which is not only a huge environmental hazard, it's a hazard for nuclear proliferation. A lot of these countries... You know, the, the Saudis, for example, they, they got plenty of energy. And I'm not talking about oil. They got all that solar and wind energy. They don't want nuclear power for electricity. They want it so they can start a nuclear weapons program. So 
This is madness, nuclear madness. Biden came out with his 2024 budget proposal on Thursday, and it's offering billions to the decrepit and dangerous nuclear industry to keep those nukes running. Uh, for example, Diablo Canyon, which sits on in the, re in, in the vicinity of eight earthquake faults. It's 40 years old. It's getting embrittled from the radiation. A lot of the equipment is wearing out. It was supposed to be shut down next year under agreements that were reached between the California government, the governor and the legislature, uh, the unions that work there, PG&E, the company that owns it, uh, environmental groups. It was all set to go. But in the last year, uh, Governor Newsom, a Democrat, has uh, reneged on that deal. Uh, has proposed more subsidies. The federal government just kicked in a billion dollars to keep Diablo Canyon running past its projected lifetime. When it, the older they get, the more dangerous they get. And it just got its license extended uh, by the NRC without even a safety inspection by NRC people. This is just crazy. And then another nuke that was shut down in Michigan, Palisades. The owner shut it down for safety reasons, had defects. And now they're going to reopen it with subsidies. Um, and this is crazy because nuclear power is very expensive. It has to be subsidized. It can't be insured. There's a little $13 billion fund at the federal government. The private insurance companies won't insure it because a nuclear disaster is going to be a multi, you know, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in damage. And insurance companies say, no, we're not going to insure that. So we have this little federal fund under the Price-Anderson Act, which is just a, a fig leaf for, for a total disaster. Meanwhile, wind, solar storage, and efficiency are cheaper. So why the hell is Biden doing this? Well, one thing I, I found out while I was running in 2020, he was the only presidential candidate to get donations from the nuclear industry, the Nuclear Energy Institute PAC. Um, although many leaders, both Democrat and Republican in Congress, right up to the top, uh, and both parties got uh, lots of PAC donations from the Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, but I don't think Biden's really, look, the donations weren't that big for Biden. I think what's really going on here is institutional. The military industrial complex and foreign policy elites want to keep nuclear power running because it produces fissionable materials that can be used for nuclear bombs. And they want to maintain a skilled nuclear workforce so they can work on weapons, if not power. Um, but they want them to work on power so their skills are kept up. Um, that's what's really driving this. And you know, this is what we've got to resist. In that budget, there's over $70 billion for nuclear bombs and missiles uh, in Biden's budget proposal he just came out with, uh, which the military and Congress are already saying is not enough. Um, of course, the that's billions for the Department of Energy. It's not just the Department of Defense because the Department of Energy, uh, they produce fissionable materials for bombs, subsidize these failing nukes, and are doing uh, research and development grants for so-called modular and so-called advanced reactors, um, which aren't advanced at all. I mean, these are designs using uh, sodium or molten salt or gas for cooling that were tried and failed in the 40s and 50s and 60s. 
and they call it advanced. It's it's unbelievable. Um, the DOE budget has 23.8 billion for the National Nuclear Safety, uh, sorry, National Nuclear Security Administration. That's the largest uh, request for the, that agency in history. And that's what produces fissionable material for nuclear weapons. Uh, Department of Energy has $6 billion for nuclear power plant subsidies and $4.7 billion for research and development on these so-called uh, advanced reactors and small modular reactors, which, I mean, don't make any sense from an economic point of view. Um, they don't have the economies of scale that the conventional reactors do. But in any case, they're more expensive than solar, wind, storage, and efficiency. Um, and then the Department of Defense is getting $37.7 billion for nuclear weapon modernization. And what that mainly means is uh, developing these hypersonic missiles, which are fueling this new nuclear arms race. And we saw six or seven of them uh, that the Russians have launched on Ukraine uh, day before yesterday. Um, and these are so fast that any uh, aircraft or anti-air uh, defense systems can't stop them. They just come in too damn fast, which puts the whole system on a hair trigger and brings us that much closer to nuclear disaster. Um, so, you know, we've got to be emphasizing uh, an anti-nuclear movement that focuses on both weapons and power. Uh, the nuclear disarmament treaties that the U.S. withdrew from and now Russia's suspended participation in START, the Strategic Arms Treaty, have to be renewed. We really got to push on that. And then we got to stop this craziness of trying to uh, extend the life of these power plants, even build new ones when they're so much more expensive than clean renewables. And then meanwhile, this morning, the New York Times reported that the Biden administration will approve the $8 billion Willow Project for oil drilling on the North Slope of Alaska. And as the New York Times article said, and I'm quoting, ConocoPhillips intends to build the Willow Project inside the National Petroleum Reserve, a 23 million acre area that is 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. The reserve, which has no roads, is the, is the country's largest single expanse of pristine land. And this is the man, Joe Biden, who promised during his campaign for president, quote, no more drilling on federal lands, period. I'm getting sick of this stuff. I mean, we need the Green Party more than ever. So I'm looking forward to your questions and answers. Richard Pink, Illinois has subsidized nuclear reactors with billions of dollars in legislation that increases electric bills across the state. Yeah, welcome to the club, Richard. We got that in New York, thanks to Andrew Cuomo. $8 billion in subsidies over, I don't know, eight years or something. And we're still in the middle of it. And uh, you know, our reactors upstate, these are four upstate reactors are, are old. Uh, one of them is one of the oldest in the country, Indian Point One. And it's it's got, it should be shut down just for safety reasons. Yeah, this is crazy. <clears throat> How many 
square miles of public land did Build Back Better open to oil and gas? I don't know the square miles, but uh, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, I'm trying to remember the amount of area open to um, oil drilling. I think it's more than all the public lands on the on the on, on the United States. I'm not sure about that, but it's a vast area. And of course, Build Back Better, 600 million opened under Build Back Better, 600 million acres of public lands. Again, breaking Biden's promise. I call it, well, Build Back Better, I think you mean the Inflation Reduction Act, because Build Back Better never passed. And I call the Inflation Reduction Act Build Back Badly, because they have to lease uh, oil drilling and gas drilling uh, to a certain extent, and I forget the ratio, but a certain amount before they can uh, uh, open up land for oil, uh, solar and wind installations. So, you know, the Biden administration is giving lip service to climate change and making promises they can't keep about what's the number they want to get to uh, 100%. What, what, no, by 2030, they want to get to, uh, he said, 52% of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions. There's no way in, in with the Inflation Reduction Act that they can meet that, that goal. There are some models that some academics did, but they make crazy assumptions about what the states will do, about what the private sector will do. And it's very optimistic on what the uh, Inflation Reduction Act itself can do. I mean, I'll believe that for a minute. They are far short of what we need. And of course, the climate crisis isn't waiting. It's, uh, you can see it right now in the weather. And uh, we keep getting bad news every week. I mean, the latest was the Arctic ice uh, reached the lowest level on record this summer in the, in the Southern Hemisphere summer. So that means the oceans are rising, among other things. Frankie Lee, Howie, are we going to keep supporting Ukraine and arming them until we break our own economy? Isn't this policy a disaster in the making for us? Now, what we're giving to Ukraine is a drop in the bucket. It's a rounding error on a almost $7 trillion federal budget. And we're talking so far about $40 billion has been released. In, in the pipeline is $110 billion, $40 billion of which is humanitarian aid. Um, you know, we can afford to help the Ukrainians defend themselves and provide them the economic and humanitarian aid they need. I mean, they, one third of their people are homeless now. Their homes have been destroyed by the Russian invasion. They're displaced. Some are refugees in Europe, but about half of those displaced people are right there in Ukraine. They need support. And then if we stop providing arms to Ukraine, Russia's just going to roll over the whole country and colonize it and do what they're doing in the occupied areas, where if you're not a loyal Russian, they will imprison you, they may execute you, uh, they will, they rape and torture. I mean, we've got Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, UN reports coming out, documenting this from hundreds of interviews. They're stealing children from families and sending them to Russia. These are war crimes and crimes against humanity. And if we can help the Ukrainians, we should. And it's not taking out 
I mean, if we want to fund human needs in this country, why don't we really tax the rich? Why don't we re repeal the Trump uh, tax cuts, which the Democrats promised and are not doing? Um, we need a wealth tax. We need a financial transactions tax. There's plenty of money here for that. Plus, there's so much in the military budget we can cut, like this nuclear arms modernization program. I mean, we got enough of a deterrent to bounce the rubble after the nuclear war with more weapons. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. So we can cut back on that. Uh, you know, that's $70 billion right there for nuclear power and weapons I just described. Uh, we have deployments all over the world that are not contributing to peace. They're actually making it worse. There's so much we can do. And to pit Ukraine against our needs is, uh, you know, not what we should do. That's America first stuff that we get from Trump. Um, we live in a, you know, we're all live in the same world. And if working people and oppressed people don't support each other, uh, if we as people on the left don't support uh, people that are being invaded and exploited and oppressed in Ukraine, those people in Ukraine are going to look elsewhere than the left or the Greens. They're going to look for anybody that are allies in their time of need. That is not a, you know, smart strategy for the left. So, no, it's not, you know, Ukraine is not preventing us from having Medicare for all or an eco-socialist Green New Deal or student debt relief or any of the other things we want. It's not Ukraine. It's our own damn ruling class that is, runs both parties, and it's why we need an alternative to them. Vicki Corden, Republicans want to send the military to Mexico to fight the cartels after four Americans were kidnapped and two of them murdered. It sounds like war, your thoughts. Yeah, we have militarized uh, the drug war in Mexico and all that has done is given uh, the cartels uh, reason to arm and they fight each other for you know their turf and their markets, uh, but they, they're as strong as the Mexican military, which we've been supporting. Uh, I think what we need to do is decriminalize drugs in this country for possession. It doesn't become a criminal offense. If you're an addict, you should have access to treatment. And that will undermine the markets for the cartels because uh, these things would be uh, outside the black market. Um, Mexico, you know, 100,000 deaths. Um, and I forget the time frame for that, but that's, that's like a major war going on just south of our border. And it's mostly Mexicans that are suffering. It's journalists that dig into what the cartels are doing. Uh, it's a real problem, but I think, uh, you know, we'll do better rather than militarizing the problem and just trying to, you know, outgun the cartels. Uh, you know, they can engage in guerrilla warfare. It'd be another endless war. Uh, we need to be supporting real development in Mexico to uplift the living standards. So the drug cartels are not the employment option for so many young people in Mexico. Um, and then take their market away from them by decriminalizing drugs in this country. And, and in the case of marijuana, legalizing it. Brand Gill, thoughts on legalizing taxing and heavily regulating all drugs rather than just decriminalization. Uh, I think marijuana like alcohol and tobacco should be legalized, taxed, and regulated. Uh, the other drugs, you know, cocaine, meth, heroin, 
Um, I think possession should be decriminalized. I don't think we want to legalize and have those drugs marketed. They're, they're so dangerous. So the law enforcement uh, should focus on uh, the trafficking, not the people using it. And by helping the people that are addicted, we can reduce the market for those drugs. And mushrooms. Um, well, it depends on the mushroom, but I, I get what you're getting at. That's those psychotropic mushrooms that uh, are actually part of religious ceremonies for some uh, indigenous nations. Um, and as I understand it, the scientific literature says they do have medical uses. Um, so I guess what they've done in, in Colorado, for example, is uh, I think they decriminalized them. I don't know if they legalized them but maybe they legalize them. Colorado's decriminalized mushrooms. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, I think those, uh, those drugs should be decriminalized as well. Brand Gill, psychedelics, MDMA should definitely be legal, at least in therapeutic psychiatric settings. I would agree on the, you know, uh, medical settings. Um, I think it might depend on the particular psychedelic. Um, I'm not an expert in this field, but, you know, I don't want to legalize and have marketed uh, drugs that are really dangerous, you know, just like, you know, other drugs you need a prescription for. Um, but they should be legal in a medical setting if uh, that's what the medical people uh, believe is, is good treatment. Rachel Mohan. Howie, Newsom's stance on Diablo Canyon Sentinel-free <clears throat> is reflective of the news, nuclear industry's success at framing themselves as climate-friendly. I think you're right. I mean, that's what Cuomo said here. You know, it's carbon-free energy. We're trying to, you know, reduce carbon emissions in the state of New York. So we'll keep the nukes going. Um, yeah, they've done that. Now, we need to realize that nuclear power is not carbon-free. You go through the whole carbon, uh, uranium enrichment cycle, mining the uranium, uh, processing it. There's a lot of carbon released there. Um, they're, you know, in the construction. And then they're backed up by uh, diesel generators. You know, when they go offline or if power to them goes offline, um, and they don't get power off the grid to, to maintain their systems for cooling. They rely on diesel generators. So now those carbon uh, footprints are not as big as is, you know, for the direct fossil fuel industries, oil and gas and coal. But it's not nothing. But the main argument I think we have is that nuclear industry's failure in providing electricity economically requiring all these subsidies uh, while solar, wind, storage, and efficiency are just falling you know, through the floor in terms of their costs and are cheaper than nuclear power is the strongest argument we have to end these subsidies and to shut down the nuclear industry.
Violet Content Boutique. Meanwhile, climate change just marches on. The levee broke in Santa Cruz this morning. Immediate evacuations. Hmm. I, I don't know where the levee is in Santa Cruz. I'm, I came up in the Bay Area, so I'm somewhat familiar with Santa Cruz. I know those uh, mountains going over the, uh, from the Bay Area over to Santa Cruz are uh, just getting drenched in rain. So I guess it flowed down in, in whatever levee that was broke. Um, you know, there are levees in the valley that, you know, the Central Valley that are, I'm sure, going to overflow with this. Uh, I guess this storm is the, the snow line is higher. So snow that fell previously below that line is going to melt and, and pour into the rivers. So California is, uh, you know, really getting drenched. But it's it's not the only place that's getting uh, dangerous weather. And climate change, I mean, the reason why California, when you when they get these, these call them the Pineapple Express, these uh, atmospheric rivers of moisture coming from the tropics, uh, there's more moisture in the air because uh, there's more evaporation because it's hotter. And so there's more moisture in the atmosphere, more moisture that falls, and we get these super storms. Via email, have you seen reports on the far right targeting the U.S. power grid and the risk for more attacks? Yeah, I've seen those reports. And the grid, you know, if somebody wanted to, uh, you know, cripple this country, the grid is, uh, uh, you know, a good target for that. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's something we got to worry about. Um, and... Yeah, I'm trying to remember the reports. I think, yeah, I can't remember the details, but it was definitely, uh, you know, a far right uh, guy or group that, you know, had plans, I guess. They didn't, weren't able to carry through with them. Um, yeah, we're vulnerable. And uh, another reason for, you know, expanding solar power in particular, uh, because it's, it's distributed. So while you might take out a, you know, a transmission line, uh, you're still generating power everywhere instead of everybody's power being dependent on centralized nuclear and coal plants and now gas plants. So it's just another argument, a security argument for, uh, you know, building more solar power, um, having a smart grid. So if one transmission line or distribution line goes down, you can reroute that power um, and then also, I mean, another, uh, you know, threat to our security is a terrorist attack on a nuclear power plant. You know, we're worried about that in, in the Ukraine, but it could happen here. You know, if the, one of these far right terrorist groups wanted to, you know, really cause havoc, they could go after a nuclear power plant. Scout Trooper 164, I just heard the Silicon Valley Bank has failed, and it's the biggest since 2008. Yep, um, and it's kind of a classic bank run. Uh, it was known as a bank that was liberal in its lending policies, oriented to the you know startups in Silicon Valley, and something spooked uh, you know the big investors who had 
a lot more in their accounts there than just the $250,000 that the uh, federal FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, guarantees. And so they wanted to get their money out uh, when you know it first started, and it was a run. It was a run on a bank. And all these banks have a lot more lent out than they have in uh, li liquid assets. So if there's a run on a bank, it's going to fail. And that's what happened here. Um, so that that's, uh, you know, it happens occasionally to banks. I, I haven't read anything that tells me this bank was particularly uh, um, irresponsible in what it did. It was a bank that took more risks than some banks because of the business loans it made to, uh, you know, tech startups. Um, but it wasn't way out of the ordinary. So I'm not sure how much you can read into it about how the, you know, where the banking system is now. I think this was probably a, a case with its own unique circumstances. But uh, I haven't researched it deeply. That's just what my gut is telling me based on the fact that we haven't had many uh, bank failures since 2008. <clears throat> Comments on Iran and Saudi Arabia restoring diplomatic ties after China hosted talks. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, I, you know, people are reading a lot into it. Um, I see a couple of things. One is I see two uh, theocratic reactionary regimes deciding they would rather do business than fight each other. Um, so I'm not sure it does much for the people of Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, it could make a difference in Yemen, and this is where people are hopeful because the Houthis are backed by Iran and the Saudis back uh, the other government, which is the least amount of land controlled in Yemen, uh, which means maybe they can uh, come to a political solution for Yemen, uh, which would be difficult even if they want to do it because the sides in Yemen are uh, going to have a hard time reconciling. So I think that's, you know, one potential good thing comes out of it. Um, China has not been known for uh, this kind of diplomacy. I mean, they're, what they do in the uh, global south and other countries around the world is, uh, you know, their belts and roads initiative, you know, economic development projects, lending money, and also coming in and building projects. Um, and that's been their way of, uh, you know, winning friends. Um, here they are, you know, they brokered a deal apparently, uh, which is, uh, I guess a good thing, you know, it's, it's good to see China trying to do positive diplomacy uh, rather than just pursuing their own uh, economic programs. So those are, you know, some first thoughts on that. Um, I've, I've just seen the headlines. I haven't really read any analysis. So I'm giving you, you know, my first reactions off the top of my head. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164, apparently it was revealed in text that Tucker Carlson passionately hates Donald Trump. Any thoughts or no surprise? No surprise, Tucker Carlson is a total opportunist, uh, a cynic, 
a mean-spirited person, an unethical person. So it doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, Donald Trump is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Tucker Carlson may be a jerk, but he's not stupid. And so it's no surprise that he could see what Donald Trump really is and hated it. And no surprise that, you know, his, in public on his program, he was a big Trump supporter. To this day, I mean, now he's he got these tapes from McCarthy, you know, 40,000 hours of uh, tape about what happened during the January 6th insurrection. And so he's cherry picking the scenes where people are, you know, walking through the halls or interacting with the Capitol Police in a nonviolent way and saying that's the whole story, um, backing up Trump's big lie. So, yeah, Tucker Carlson. Unfortunately, he's uh, the most watched uh, nighttime, they call him news, they're really infotainment hosts on cable TV. But that's that's where we're at. Garrett Wasserman, what can green socialists do to stop Cop City and link, link policing and environmental issues together in public conversation? Well, I think, you know, talk about what Cop City is. It's it's a uh, basically a militarized policing training base that is proposed and planned to be built on Atlanta's largest urban forest, um, which the community wants to keep the forest. They, there was a plan to turn it into a, a, a park so it, it wasn't just, you know, overgrowth and trees, it was actually a park people, you know, could could go in and it, it would be, uh, you know, built such that it was, you know, safe place for recreation. And those trees, you know, clean the air and the urban environment. There's a lot of good things going for it. You know, Cop City is uh, militarized policing to the extreme. And it was to be a center for militarized policing, not just for the Atlanta police force, but police forces all over the country. Um, so environmentalists and uh, people opposed to, you know, police brutality got together and were protesting this, this site in Atlanta. And they were occupying the site. And last month, the, the police came in uh, with arms and shot one of the protesters, a, a man they called Tort, Manuel Terrance was his real name or given name. And uh, 12 or 13 bullets, uh, he was killed with 12 or 13 bullets. I mean, and, you know, the cop said he had a gun. There's no evidence of that. Uh, he, he was known for advocating a nonviolent approach uh, to those protests. So uh, there's a lot swirling around this. And there's a week going on right now. You'll have to Google it. I didn't bring any links to it. But there's activity going on now in Atlanta. And they're asking for support from around the country. So uh, they should get it. They should get it from all of us. And, uh, you know, we, we should want to stop Cop City and turn that place into a park and have a victory for the environmentalists and the anti-police brutality forces. Um, I wrote a about a 10,000-word article for uh, the Journal of Modern Slavery couple years ago, and they still haven't published it. It seems like they may never. I, I have another journal in mind to publish. And I, you know, I talked about in part of that, 
it was the basic theme of it. I forget the title exactly, but it was something like uh, uh, environmental justice resists, but environmental racism persists. Because despite all the movements and occasional victories, their overall picture is environmental racism. They're still dumping uh, toxic sites and, uh, you know, disregarding uh, particularly indigenous and black communities and, and, and Latino communities when it comes to environmental issues. And uh, that was the overall theme, but I had a section in there about violence against uh, environmental activists. And they're saying this young man, Tort, was the first killed by police, uh, first environmental activist. And around the world, Mexico, that's one place, Brazil, Colombia, uh, the Philippines, uh, Nigeria, there are environmental activists killed because they're resisting often the fossil fuel industry, often the uh, forestry industry. Um, and I've put reports and I put the links on, uh, on the chat in previous uh, podcasts. But they're saying Tort was the first. And actually, I guess he was the first killed by an officer on duty. But there was a, a woman, her last name was Hawkins, no relation, in Mississippi, probably the first environmental justice act, action. She and her husband had uh, been active with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, providing homes for people during Mississippi Freedom Summer. And uh, toward the end of the 60s, they uh, noticed, or didn't notice, but decided they would act on the fact that Mississippi was not providing basic services like sewage and water and streets and lighting to the black community where they live. And we see that still being played out right now in Jackson, Mississippi. And so they sued. And uh, I'm trying to remember, they won at the first level and appeals overturned them. And uh, that decision has made it harder to do environmental justice legal actions. Um, I have to get my article published and then I can refer you to the details, which I don't have all in my head. But it was a it was a really important case that's been largely forgotten. Um, and Miss Hawkins was killed by a police officer who went into her home and killed her. And he uh, he uh, was uh, exonerated or, or found not guilty by an all white jury, Mississippi justice. Um, this was in the early 70s. So I was just to say that uh, environmental activists being harassed, we know what they were doing to the indigenous-led protests against pipelines in the Dakotas and Minnesota and in Michigan and Wisconsin uh, and uh, other protests, you know, in New York City and Memphis, Tennessee. Um, they treat environmentalists like they're terrorists. Um, so that's that's a problem. And it came to a head in Cop City. And it's really an important struggle that we should all support. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd start Googling Cop City Solidarity or uh, Forest Defenders in Atlanta. Just, just find out what's going on. Because there's a lot of activity this week, uh, you know, from signing statements to sending messages to writing letters or even going down there to participate in the events. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, I know you're an activist, but what methods do you use so you don't suffer political burnout 
and feel exhausted from what you get done. I've been avoiding the news because of said burnout. Okay, uh, I guess I can give you three things. One is uh, study history. And I've lived some of this history, but uh, most times you're trying to make change, you're not making progress that you can see. And then at some point along the road, you'll break through. And, you know, these struggles can go on for a long time. And just have faith that uh, you're changing people's minds, even if it's their subconscious minds. Uh, you know, one example I probably related before on this is during the anti-Vietnam War protests in the late 1960s. Um, where I came up, there were a lot of auto workers who were World War II veterans, and they were really vigorously opposed to those of us that were saying we should get out of Vietnam. You know, out now, it's not our country. It's none of our business. That's for the Vietnamese to decide. And they just thought, you know, we were, um, you know, being soft on communism or whatever the thing was um, until, you know, about March, April 1968, when it was after the Tet Offensive, which was seen as a defeat by the U.S., although from a military point of view, it was probably for, you know, uh, General Geoff's army, but um, they started turning and they were like a, a flock of birds or a school of fish where it's just, you know, suddenly they all turn together and it's like nobody gave the order. Um, I think what happens in those cases is um, people stick with their previous position because of peer pressure. And suddenly when a few change, you get a critical mass and then everybody says, yeah, and they join in. So I think as you're being active and trying to persuade people, uh, just keep that scenario in mind. Things can change. Look at how fast uh, public policy regarding uh, marriage equality changed. You know, in the 2004 and 2006 election, Karl Rove was putting referendums on the states against gay marriage and other uh, rights for LGBTQ people um, as a way of mobilizing the Republican base. And less than 10 years later, the Supreme Court affirmed the legality of marriage equality. And a lot of states had already done it. I mean, public opinion on that switched very fast. And uh, so that's one thing. So, you know, get a sense of history, study how social change happens. So you can put your current activities in a larger perspective and see that, um, you know, you don't always see progress right at the start, but it's coming. Um, second thing is be part of a group because, you know, then you can support each other and, uh, know you're not alone in the struggle. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a better way than just being a, you know, solo activist who maybe shows up to demonstrate somebody else calls or is sitting online. But, uh, you know, if you're part of a group, it's, it's easier to, you know, maintain, um, and then the third thing, I mean, this is my personal thing. Um, I end the day by going to the gym and working out. And by the end of the day, I'm so tired. Um, I don't even worry about burnout. I just want to eat and go to bed, um, get a good night's sleep. And then the next day, uh, you know, I've got a fresher perspective. Um, so that's what I can say, you know, have a historical perspective. And I would say one thing for me, I've lived through some of these changes, the anti-Vietnam War movement, anti-nuclear movement. You know, I was involved in organizing the first 
mass occupation of the nuclear power plant sites, Seabrook, 1977, uh, although we'd had smaller occupations the previous year. And that exploded across the country. And after that occupation we had in 1977, there were no new nuclear power plants ordered from 1977 until, you know, about 2010, 2011 in the Obama administration, when the Obama policy was to guarantee loans to build nukes. And so you've got a couple in South Carolina, a couple in Georgia. The ones in South Carolina uh, had to be canceled for cost overruns. And in fact, this week I saw that the CEO of that utility lied about their progress and he's now facing uh, jail time, uh, along with a couple other executives of that utility. And in Georgia, uh, because Kemp has, you know, probably stole the election last time, this time he probably won it, but uh, he's a creature of uh, Duke Power and the Southern Company uh, that promote nuclear power. And so he's continuing to subsidize the Volunukes, which started out at a price tag of $14 billion. It's now up to $35 billion. They're years behind schedule, although they may come online, you know, maybe sometime next year. Um, so anyway, that's the anti-nuclear uh, movement, the, the gay marriage, the anti-Vietnam War. Um, so I've lived through changes. So I know change could happen. So I don't get burned out. I stay optimistic because I know it can happen. And I have a historical perspective. And then also a theoretical perspective. You know, if you understand the powers you're up against, you know it's more than just a matter <coughs> of being active. You're up against very powerful forces with an institutional history. Um, and so, you know, it's understandable why uh, it's, it's a difficult struggle for us. But at least then you understand what you're up against and what you need to build in order to overcome. So um, history, theory, um, you know, taking care of yourself. I gave you four things. What was the, the other one? Oh, being part of a group. I think all those things will, will help avoid political burnout and feel exhausted, you know. Get, get some sleep. My way of getting sleep is getting beat up at the gym. And then I really don't care about anything but eating and sleeping. And after a good night's sleep, you know, it's a new day. Garrett Wasserman, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro just announced support for hydrogen infrastructure, which seems aimed at making fossil fuels and petrochemicals more climate friendly ridiculous after East Palestine. Yeah, what they want to do is uh, use the gas pipelines uh, for a mixture of gas and hydrogen, which will keep the gas going. It's supposedly low carbon or lower carbon than uh, just strict fossil gas. Um, but it's also a way to avoid the better solution for heating homes Rather than natural gas, we should be using electric heat pumps, the electricity powered by renewables. And then we don't need to be burning gas. Um, to, to go with, uh, you know, modifying the existing gas pipeline with some hydrogen um, is uh, not going to get us to where we want to go and get us to cut those carbons in uh, the building sector. In New York State, it's not true in every state, but in New York State, 
buildings account for over 30% of our, our carbon footprint and it's the largest single sector. Um, and you know, our utilities wanna do the same thing with the support uh, of our governor. And you know, they're, they're not pro-climate governors, they're pro-fossil fuel industry governors. Um, the other thing is how is that hydrogen gonna be made? Another thing they want to use that for is uh, um, they want to strip it from natural gas and then use the hydrogen, which is needed for industrial purposes. What we want is green hydrogen produced by electrolysis from renewable energy sources. There are other forms of hydrogen. Pink hydrogen, pink hydrogen is hydrogen where the electrolysis is performed by nuclear electricity. There's a blue hydrogen, which is, uh, I think, stripping the uh, natural gas. And then there's, I think there's a brown hydrogen, which may be getting it from coal. In any case, we want green hydrogen. And it does have uses. For example, to replace coke ovens in steel mills, uh, you can use hydrogen to heat those ovens rather than coke, which is a fossil fuel derivative. Um, and there are other industrial processes requiring high heat where hydrogen is just what we need, green hydrogen. So there is a place for hydrogen, but um, it's not you know, to be a supplement to the natural gas industry for heating homes or you know, fueling cooking in, on the stove. The email thoughts on being on there being more Norfolk Southern train wrecks since the one that made headlines in Ohio in the company's lackluster response to the responses they have caused. You know, we've had that here in New York with CSX, same thing. We've had some very serious accidents. And then, you know, they say, oh, we're going to fix things and we'll clean up the one we just, the mess we just made. And then two weeks later, you hear about another train wreck. Um, so that's why, you know, we should support the Rail Workers United. Uh, what I called for during my presidential campaign as part of the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, and that is to bring the railroads under public ownership, where we can prioritize safety and operate them at cost rather than for the cost plus profit. And the profits in that industry were the highest of any industry in the country last year. And they spent most of that profit on stock buybacks to juice their stock prices higher, which made the rich folks that own them richer. Uh, instead of investing in the workers and in the uh, equipment of the railroads, um, if we had a publicly owned railroad system and a policy of modernizing a railroad system, we have one of the worst railroad systems in the industrial world. Uh, you know, the freight rail is, you know, it's, it's old and the passenger rail is hardly exists in compared to other countries where they have separate lines for freight and, and transportation and they have high speed, uh, long range rail transportation, which reduces the need for uh, going in airplanes for intermediate range and, and shorter distances. Um, there's just so much to be said for that. And, you know, with a public uh, rail system, we could, you know, get more and build out our freight rail system in a safe way 
so that uh, more of our freight moves on rails rather than trucks on roads, which is a lot more uh, energy intensive and energy inefficient. So there's a lot to be said for the, for the rails. And then the railway workers, we just had this uh, near strike over uh, them just having some sick days. Um, and then this Northern Suffolk, uh, Suffolk Southern uh, accident, uh, one of the issues is you have one man crews on some of these trains and they're trying to get two man crews. They don't have enough people for them to be run safely. So if we had a public system, we could uh, make sure it was staffed adequately and run safely. So I think, you know, what would the lesson to draw is we need to push for uh, public ownership of the, of the American railway system. Grant Gill, speaking of ethics, I'm a philosophy major. Does the Green Party have ethical takes, a system of belief, normative ethical views? Well, we have the 10 key values, uh, which are derived from the four pillars that the German Greens came up with as a basis for unity back in 19, I think it was 83 when they came together. And the four pillars uh, are grassroots democracy, which means not just democratic ways of electing representatives, but actually uh, they called it base democracy in Germany. Uh, democratic forms at the base of society that can hold those representatives accountable. Ecology, obviously, was another pillar. Um, they called it social responsibility, I believe. But, or maybe it was just the word social, which in, in Germany basically means socialist, or at least a strong public sector that provides uh, the, for the basic needs of people in terms of health, education, welfare, housing, and so forth. And in the fourth was nonviolence, which didn't mean strict pacifism. It meant uh, their movement would not use violent means to advance their program, which in Germany was a big issue at the time because uh, you had the Red Brigades, I think they were called in Germany. You Anyway, you had this uh, nominally left-wing group that was engaged in uh, terrorist bombings and kidnappings and bank robberies. And the state was using that as an excuse. State under, uh, at that point, I think social democratic control. In any case, the state was using that as a way to crack down on all the left. So the Greens were saying, no, we're not violent. We're not part of that violent movement. But they did, and this is right in their first program, say um, that we also uh, affirm the right of people to self-defense, um, which sometimes the pacifist wing of the Greens doesn't want to remember and wants to say we are always, you know, strictly pacifist, um, which I, I just can't abide by. I mean, you know, you can look at it in terms of Russia and Ukraine, or you can look at it in terms of a rapist and their victim. And uh, if you're a pacifist, you don't use force to stop the rapist, which to me is fundamentally immoral. But anyway, those are the four values. Now, the, the, when we had a meeting, and I was there in, in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1984, um, people wanted to come out with some kind of statement. And we really couldn't agree on much of the statement. So we came out with 10 key values. And rather than say what they meant, we had questions about what they might mean. And that was the first statement of the 10 key values. 
So in addition to the four pillars from Germany, we had other ones, including um, what we called it. Oh, we had personal responsibility, which was kind of a, a sop, I think, to the to the new age people there. We had decentralization, which raised a whole lot of questions about whether decentralization means bottom-up democracy for the larger group or everybody do what they want in their local area. That debate goes on. Um, what else do we have in there? We now call it feminism. Back then, I think we called it post-patriarchy. Um, you know, I've always gone with the four values, because the four pillars, because it's easier to remember. And it seems to me that the other uh, of the 10 key values were derived from those four pillars. But in any case, that I would guess you could say is the normative uh, base, the values of the Green Party in the United States. And around the world, most Green Parties around the world have some reference to those uh, four pillars that the Greens in Germany used. Some have five. I think I saw one party, they, they take... Uh, they have an economic justice and a social justice. Uh, the Green Party in the United States just calls it social justice, but they include under that economic justice. So I don't know if that's good enough for a philosophy major, but that's you know what we got. And there's plenty of uh, things you can look up online and in the library about those four pillars and the 10 key values. Okay, that's it. I, the hour has passed quickly. I hope I was uh, helpful in my responses to your questions and comments. I mentioned last week uh, I'm working on a couple of guests, and uh, we made progress this week. They just got to pick their Saturdays, and so that's coming up. And, uh, you know, going back to what I said at the top, you know, we're, we're in a very difficult situation right now because the Republicans obviously are very dangerous, anti-democratic, authoritarian, um, you know, and there are big differences, despite what some people say, between the Democrats and Republicans. The Republicans are trying to ban abortion. The, Republic the Democrats are not. The Republicans are trying to restrict uh, voting rights for people of color. The Democrats are not. Um, so there, there are some important differences there. But on the other hand, as I talked about at the beginning, what the Democrats are doing is reckless, irresponsible, and dangerous. And we need an alternative to that. So somebody said they were getting burned out. Uh, I just say, you know, eat a good meal, get some exercise, get a good night's sleep, and then hopefully you'll feel better and not uh, burned out uh, when you get up because we need you. We need all of us, and I hope everybody, you know, sticks with it. Like I said when I was answering that burnout question, um, sometimes it seems like we're not making progress, but actually – we are. We're changing people's minds, even if they won't admit it to us or even to themselves sometimes. Um, but if we're silent, if we're burned out, if we just say nothing can change, nothing will change. But I've been involved in enough movements that I know we can make a difference. So we got to. I mean, we really don't have a choice when it comes to climate change or this new nuclear arms race. Or for many of us, the new growing inequality, which is a life or death issue for many people. They got to choose between rent and utilities and going to the doctor and they skip the medical side and sometimes it kills them. I've talked about the man that lived downstairs from me. It, that may, Having to make that choice killed him a couple of years ago. 
So these are real issues and, um, you know, don't get burned out, just get refreshed. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week and, uh, you know, keep up the struggle. Take care. Love.